Once you have tasted flight, you will forever walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward, for there you have been, and there you will always long to return. Leonardo da Vinci said that in the 15th century, and while he never got to witness transatlantic travel and the supersonic jet, he also never had to wrestle for an armrest. We've always wanted to be amongst the clouds. Everything worth fearing or revering has always come with a pair of wings. It's a fascination that goes right to the centre of what makes us human. But our dreams of flight have, for the last few months, been largely stalled by COVID-19. And if you've turned your eyes skyward as Leonardo always did, you'd probably have noticed less planes in the sky and a very sore neck. In today's episode, we'll be taking a closer look at whether COVID-19 has shone a harsh light on aviation's carbon footprint, or whether despite the crisis, the big plays in aviation will be unwilling to turn off autopilot. This is Think Sustainability, and I'm your host, Max Tillman. There's two big questions. What have we learnt over the last few months about the environmental impact of commercial aviation? If aviation was a country, it would be amongst the top 10 carbon emitting countries in the world. So it is a massively emitting sector and it is on track to continue rising. And where can the industry make hay while the sun shines on finding unique solutions for greener flying? There has been a lot of interest in 3D printing for the airline industry generally. So if you're talking about that small again across a fleet of 100 airplanes, the saving in weight has significant implications for fuel usage, which is possibly beneficial for everyone. Or whether the next great leap forward in aviation may be coming from algae. We can, in a matter of weeks, go from catching sunlight to making renewable fuels rather than millions of years. So familiarise yourself with your nearest emergency exit, make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened and relax. This is Fight or Flight. Of the many industries to be brought to their knees over the last few months, commercial aviation stall came as governments around the world shut borders in an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. Fleets were grounded, travel plans were cancelled, and airports became ghost towns. In Australia, Qantas announced the suspension of all international flights from the end of March and decreased domestic flight capacity by around 60%. Virgin seized all international flights from the 27th of March until the 14th of June and cut their domestic capacity by 90% before, as we all know now, going into administration on the 21st of April this year. The global damage can also be read in the numbers. According to global flight tracking service FlightRadar24, international commercial air traffic was 4.3% lower in February 2020 than in February 2019, and 10% lower in the period of the 1st and 19th of March 2020 compared to that same period last year. For Audrey Quick, a researcher with Think Tank the Australia Institute's Climate and Energy Programme, the grounding of most of the world's commercial aircraft presented a rare opportunity to put a theory into practice. If the commercial aviation sector collapses, what's the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions? Look, I mean, I think it it was fairly obvious that when we saw what 
effect COVID was having on the aviation industry, that there was going to be an effect on overall emissions. In April of this year, Audrey and co-author and fellow researcher Emily Jones published their report, Grounded. If you're a commercial pilot, airline shareholder or flying enthusiast, it isn't easy reading. At the moment, we've got international aviation markets that are largely closed and then our domestic aviation activity is still really limited. We see this steep decrease in flight activity from the beginning of the year and it's really only picked up slightly in June, but it has been a massive decrease. And as you can imagine, that reduction in air traffic volume has seen a concurrent drop in carbon emissions on a big scale. So our research has shown that cuts to commercial air traffic due to these COVID-19 lockdowns likely resulted in around a 10.3 million tonne reduction in global CO2 emissions over February and March of this year. At the moment, it makes up around 2.4% of global fossil fuel emissions. But importantly, that number doesn't include the non-CO2 emissions from aviation, so things like water vapour, aerosols, nitrogen oxide. And if those were included, it would be around two to four times greater in terms of those emissions than from the CO2 emissions alone. So it is a massively emitting sector and it is on track to continue rising. According to the Australia Institute's research, the International Air Transport Association is now projecting around a 38% cut in air travel in 2020. That would equate to around 350 million tonnes in global civil aviation emissions compared to 2019. And even then, airlines around the world settled into contingency plans based on SARS and MERS over the last two decades. Yet, very quickly, those plans were rendered useless. It did come up a lot when we were writing this report because we were continually looking at IATA's forecast and they were continually changing. On a month-by-month basis, that percentage decrease in flight was getting bigger and bigger. So we really did have to keep looking at that, that website and those forecasts because they were continually changing. And I think that really just put this pandemic into perspective. So yeah, you're right. If you look at previous infectious disease outbreaks, so things like avian flu, MERS, SARS, What we see there is that air traffic did briefly decline as a result of those outbreaks, but then it did return to normal in in really a few months. COVID-19 is a pandemic, firstly, so, so it is different in that respect. It's reached further across the globe and it has lasted a lot longer. So it's had a much more severe impact in many different ways, which means that it is more likely to have that sustained effect on people's behaviour. What researchers like Audrey are starting to realise is that the COVID-19 pandemic has the potential to fundamentally change our travel habits. For airlines, particularly in Australia, where the Sydney to Melbourne flight path is one of the world's most profitable, it isn't a rosy forecast for an industry already against the ropes. This is behaviour that we've now almost become accustomed to. There's been a lot of businesses that have worked out ways to shift from those face-to-face meetings. Obviously, not all meetings are going to be online, but I think that it has made everyone pause and question whether certain meetings and certain gatherings can shift to online. So, you know, for instance, we've seen a lot of virtual conferences at global organisations shifting to an online version. So we've seen the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the OECD, we've even seen our own parliament shift to this online version. Obviously, that doesn't always work. 
So in some senses, that will continue where you are using this online version into the future. And in some senses, it is more practical and more beneficial to be, you know, getting on that flight and having that face-to-face meeting. So I certainly don't think that we're going to see this continue completely into the future, but I think that it has meant that some businesses are questioning their behaviour and what they can do in the future to lessen that flying. If we just look at, at video conferencing platform Zoom, you know, it's had more active users in the first two months of this year than it did in all of last year combined. To even further complicate matters is the timing of the international agreement to reduce CO2 emissions, the Corsia Agreement. And as they say, behind every great acronym is a very long explanation. Corsia is the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation. Created in 2016, Corsia is commercial aviation's answer to the Paris Climate Agreement. As of June 2019, 80 nation-states have announced their intention to participate, representing roughly 77% of international commercial aviation. Under the agreement, countries have voluntarily agreed to global fuel efficiency improvements of 2% per year until 2050, and to cap the global net CO2 emissions from international aviation at 2020 levels. Airlines could ask for a change in the baseline year, but that would risk negating the previous four years of negotiations and bureaucratic trench warfare to get to this point in the agreement. Corsia has already attracted criticism for its focus on purchasing offsets for airlines, a process by which people, or in this case airlines themselves, can pay to offset or make up for the emissions that their flights produce by investing in renewable energy or reforestation, for example. It's the big business equivalent of using more plastic at home, but offsetting it by taking the bus to work. We did see some movement towards lowering carbon emissions within the aviation sector globally, but unfortunately, we're already seeing that the economic impact of COVID-19 is being used as an excuse to water down some of these commitments. So you mentioned Corsia there, and you're right, it is quite a handful, the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation. So that's the the central instrument for mitigating carbon emissions from international civil aviation. And that's because domestic emissions are covered under the Paris Agreement and in our national pledges. So the the Corsia Agreement is for international aviation. And its aspirational goal is to cap growth in carbon emissions from international aviation from 2020. So that effectively means that all of the growth in aviation emissions after 2020 should be carbon neutral. If 2020 is an exceptionally low year for civil aviation emissions, and initial signs indicate it will be, then the industry will have to work hard to keep emissions down while everything picks back up again. It's what corporate types call really bad luck. But when there is a will, there is always a way. But what we've seen is that during this COVID-19 crisis, lobbying from the airline industry has meant that that baseline, that 2020 baseline, has now been changed to a 2019 baseline. It's this watering down of what was supposed to be a binding deal that has researchers like Audrey worried about how willing the airline industry is to budge on its business model. Around the world, airlines are appealing to their governments for loans and guarantees and grants to assist them through the COVID-19 crisis. According to Audrey's research, the Australian airline industry has already received $715 million of aviation relief packages, waiving the aviation fuel excise, domestic and regional security charges, 
and domestic air service charges. It would seem the most obvious alternative to a Corsia deal would be for loans to be conditional on lower emissions or greener business models. And it's a really unfortunate decision. It basically undermines the integrity of the agreement. It delays the offsetting obligations. It pushes back any climate action that the agreement might have resulted in. However, within that agreement, there were actually provisions in there for if something like this were to happen. So it's actually the 2019 and 2020 years that are taken into account to create that baseline. So even though we say a 2020 baseline, it's really a mixture of the 2019 and 2020 ones. And that was with something like this in mind, with something that would really upset those emissions and have a great change. But I mean, if you think about it, do we think that the baseline would have changed if, for instance, we had a year with higher than usual emissions? No, certainly not. So just because we had a year with lower emissions doesn't mean that we should be undermining this whole agreement. But even if the airline industry are able to wind the clock back a whole year on their commitments to carbon targets, there are other options available for making flights greener. For many design experts, the key to less emissions is less weight, as the lighter an aircraft is, the less fuel you need to propel it through the air. And it is here that 3D printing makes its cameo. To explain 3D printing, I always start with explaining manufacturing. That's Jonathan O'Neill, an additive and advanced manufacturing technology leader within the University of Technology Sydney's Protospace. Led by the Faculty of Engineering and IT, Protospace spans an impressive 900 square metres and is buried deep beneath the streets of Ultimo in inner Sydney. To the untrained eye, the open-plan layout and glass panelling look like something out of CSI. Protospace is the central UTS facility around this advanced manufacturing, additive manufacturing space of 3D printing. So we are a central facility which has lots and lots of machines in this area which all do slightly different things. And our remit is to work with researchers and students and industry to evaluate how useful 3D printing could be for their applications. To the uninitiated, 3D printing seems the realms of science fiction. A few flashing lights and a low hum, and suddenly you have a scale model of the Eiffel Tower made out of plastic. In the historical sense, you make things by either joining them together, so you take a piece of raw metal and you join it together, or you take that raw material and mould it into something using a cast, or you take a piece of metal and you remove it, material, until you get to the shape you want. What 3D printing does is it takes that way of making things but segments it into layers in its most basic sense. So it means you build something up, but you only need to use the material that will exist in the final part. It's a way of building things gradually, largely only leaving behind the bits you want. So, essentially, you only get out what you put in. A windfall for manufacturing, particularly in industries where emission targets and regulations are tightening the belt on sustainability. There has been a lot of interest in 3D printing for the airline industry generally for about the last 10 years. Airbus actually has an internal 3D printing facility called Protospace. Well, that's awkward. I only found this out when I was in Hanover a couple of years ago and we literally ran into one another and went, oh my God, you're called us, we're called you, what the hell? But the airline industry is 
aware of the potential benefits of the way that additive manufacturing works in they're well aware of how utilizing that could have drastic implications for financial sustainability of their operations. As Jonathan says, 3D printing is not only recognised as a benefit to the industry. Airbus, one of the world's most recognisable aerospace companies, already has a team in-house. But that doesn't mean that 3D printing is entirely a closed shop. There's a lot of modelling happening in particular. So they're investing heavily and they are at the point maybe in the past three or four years where they're starting to utilise these things but in smaller elements. So I'm not talking huge changes to the way aeroplanes are made or utilised, but they're kind of swapping out components. There's actually been a global design challenge that was run in partnership with Airbus and uh, Autodesk, which is a large CAD software company, where they opened it up globally for people to design a bracket which held on a component of a motor, but design it with added manufacturing to optimise it. And... That part was designed by someone in Indonesia in the end, I think, um, and it ended up being 86% lighter by using added manufacturing technology. So if you're talking about a gain, that small a gain across a fleet of 100 airplanes, the saving in weight has significant implications for financial sustainability as well Mm. as fuel usage, which is possibly beneficial for everyone. One of the biggest leaps forward in 3D printing tech has been a reimagining of the humble airplane seat. For example, the one that we were talking about before was the 3D printing passenger seats for planes. The main one that I know of, because I visited the actual facility in San Francisco, uh, Autodesk has a facility called Pier 9. In 2019, San Francisco-based tech company Autodesk created a 3D printed airplane seat geometrically designed and then cast into magnesium. At just 766 grams, each individual seat frame is 54% lighter than the conventional seats used today, with the design optimization accounting for 30% of the weight reduction and the magnesium accounting for the other 24%. So if an aircraft maker, say Airbus, were to replace all 615 seats on its A380 jets with the new frames and did it across a fleet of 100 planes, which typically have a 20-year lifespan, how much money would be saved? Autodesk research scientist Andreas Bastian figures that that would save a whopping $206 million based on average jet fuel costs in 2015. Perhaps even more consequential, the fuel reduction also translates into a reduction of 126,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions over that same period. That's the equivalent of removing 80,000 cars from the road every year. He did a couple of things along the way, like he used magnesium instead of aluminium as his cast material. And magnesium is lighter, stronger, but there are fairly significant implications with magnesium and heat. So it's light, but likely to be engulfed in flames. Seems a fair trade. Magnesium is incredibly flammable sometimes. It made the numbers better, but it may not be the best option for production. The first thing that you try and optimise for is weight. So it needs to be a certain strength, and that strength needs a certain amount of material to support it, basically. So you're trying to remove as much material as possible, making it strong enough. That's where most out-of-manufacturing optimization comes from. So in terms of making that basic concept, in terms of taking that basic concept and making it usable for production, we need to make it strong enough and then add a factor of safety because you don't know who's going to be sitting in the seat or how long it's going to be used. And then you need to, then inside that scope, you have a whole different bunch of areas you could explore, depending on the machinery you want to use, how you want to make it, the options that you want to utilize. So again, kind of using the 
Autodesk example, took additive manufacturing software, optimized it, but then used an, an older technology, which was casting to make the final version because of the geometry and the cost of 3D printing, while it's getting cheaper as it gets uh, more readily available, to make something the size of a chair or even a component like a side panel on a chair for an aeroplane, you're still talking thousands and thousands of dollars. Therein lies the biggest takeaway from this segment. 3D printing is still in its relative infancy, and industry applications of prototypes like bastions are a long way off. One of the ongoing issues with 3D printing is certification. So legally, where does it sit? And that's one of the largest areas of 3D printing research is how does it fit inside the legal frameworks we already have? I'm not sure if it's a regulation, like regulators being cautious. I think there's definitely an element of the manufacturers being cautious. A lot of the people that are doing this research are the companies that are well and truly running this whole industry. I mean, for GE, who is one of the largest manufacturers of airline componentry, engines and all that kind of thing, the last thing they need is to introduce a new technology that then fails. There's a huge ramification for that. So they're, I think you could say that they're being cautious. They understand the implications and the potential, but I think there's definitely an element of caution that they're taking to the whole approach. You're talking incremental improvement. You're not talking game-changing planes a, a quarter of the weight. Like We're talking gradual improvements to large companies. So if the era of the weightless 3D printed airline seat is still merely a glimmer in the eye of an aerospace engineer, there is another, more obvious alternative to reducing carbon emissions, using a different fuel. That initiative was about trying to understand what was the best way of using biomass for biofuels. And we looked at using sugarcane and algae and also a nitrogen fixing plant called Pangamia. And the idea was really to try and understand what were the economic benefits of each, i.e. which process gave you the less CO2 emissions, for example. That's Professor Ben Hankhammer, the founding director of the Solar Biofuels Consortium and Centre for Solar Biotechnology at the University of Queensland and one of the country's leading voices on biofuels. In 2010, he and his colleagues founded the Queensland Sustainable Aviation Fuel Initiative. In short, find a way to make jet fuel in an environmentally sustainable way. That initiative was about trying to understand what was the best way of using biomass for biofuels. And our work was focused on on the algae side and trying to analyse how algae can be used. And the reason that we focused on that is that for all biofuels, obviously you need biomass, which is produced during the process of photosynthesis, where plants absorb sunlight and CO2 and make biomass. And then the process of aviation fuel production in, you know, historically were used fossil fuels. They were also produced from plants and algae because they photosynthesized and generated biomass. And then that sunk down into the bottom of the oceans or got compressed under land and under heat and pressure over a long period of time produced oil. And that crude oil is, of course, what we use as, you know, fossil fuel crude oils. And you can refine that to make aviation fuels. And now the question was then, well, how can we how can we use this biomass in a in a better way? As the professor says, utilizing algae's photosynthetic processes can produce biomass. 
capable of being converted into aviation fuel in a matter of weeks, as opposed to the eons the natural processes take to produce fossil fuels under the ground. But why algae? The algae approach that is now gradually emerging from from these things is that you can grow algae in salt water. So you can grow them either in the oceans, in floating systems, or you can grow them on non-arable land so that you don't compete with food production because we we have a growing population, which is going up from about 7.8 million people, billion people towards about 10 billion people by 2050. And we need that, that arable land for food. Algae has the advantage that you can use it for transitioning you know from a food versus fuel scenario to a food and fuel future where you can generate the algae biomass make food as well as fuels but use salt water in the process the last part of that process is that you once you've grown the algae biomass you put it into a glorified pressure cooker which mimics what happens over millions of years when you compress you know biomass on under the soils or in, under the uh, the oceans So we're playing God and doing a pretty good job of it. For a process that usually takes millennia, the Good Professor's team found an ingeniously fast solution. There are different systems for producing algae, but the simplest one is what's called a high-rate pond. And so this is a long, thin pond that sort of has a paddle wheel in it. It kind of paddles the algae around in a circle along this sort of long, thin raceway. And uh, it's maybe 25, 30 centimetres deep. And then you can harvest pretty much continuously or on a daily basis, you can harvest some of that algae out and you keep putting nutrients in so they keep growing you put co2 and that helps but the algae is harvested out and you can then somehow concentrate that you can do it through processes of flocculation where you the the algae clump if you like and fall out of solution and then once you've got that sort of algae paste you can put that as i said into a, a glorified pressure cooker which mimics what the earth did over millions of years and gives you a crude oil fraction it seems like a pretty simple recipe grow the algae, harvest the algae, allow time to reduce and, once cool, use it to power a commercial airliner. We have to face the fact that if this fuel is going to be used, it has to be pretty much at the same cost as fossil fuels. Now, I would like to say that we would all be willing to have a carbon tax, but that doesn't seem to have politically worked out that way here or in many other countries. So our driver is to to make it cost competitive. And so whatever process you choose to make it, that's what you're going to have to achieve. So if you think about that is you may have a process that you think will work or I might have a process that will think will work. But what we do is we model those processes to really try and understand what is the best way of optimizing that process. And what came what came out of that really is that if we optimize all the technologies, we can get down to about $2 a litres at the moment, we think. As we've already heard from Audrey earlier in the show, politics plays an enormous role in providing a clear path to sustainable flying. And as the professor says, with the tech on hand, fuel prices could drop to almost inconceivable levels. Based on the current technologies that we have, we think there's significant ways of improving things from there. But one of them is actually policy and government could be very influential in making this a product that's approaching something like a dollar a litre. Dollar a litre fuel made from harvest algae? To the untrained eye, or ear in this case, it may seem just as fantastical as the 3D printed airplane seat. But if we've learned anything over the last half hour, is that what was once the realm of science fiction 
is now in the infancy of its real-world applications. And as our friend Leonardo da Vinci said so eloquently, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Being willing is not enough, we must do. So, while the pandemic has temporarily frozen what was an excessive output of carbon emissions into the atmosphere, a dip in the charts may just be that. Corsi is backtracking to 2019 targets leaves much to be desired for the major players in commercial aviation. But the 3D printed airplane seat could take the weight out of commercial flying, and we could all soon be propelled through the air off the hard photosynthetic work of algae. So there's at least a few ways of easing the journey. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard all around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Max Tillman. The seatbelt sign is now off. Thanks for your company.